So this uh, evening, I would like to continue with the Eightfold Path. And I would like to first look at appropriate action. Because I feel appropriate action is very connected to the practice we did today. Being aware of Vedana, of feeling tone. And so first I'd like to, to read the definition of appropriate action. And what monks is appropriate action? Refraining from taking life, refraining from taking what is not given, refraining from sexual misconduct. This is called right action. And so if we reflect on taking life, what would lead us in a way to take life? I mean, of course, in general, I would doubt in this room that you go around killing people. But just our, as our level of experience, you're sitting in meditation and you hear And often it's faster. And why are you doing the mosquito in? Is because it's unpleasant. I mean, if it was not unpleasant, you would not do anything to the mosquito. So in a way, often, we've in a way taking life or more causing harm is because there is some an unpleasant feeling tone. And so immediately, we want to annihilate. We want to stop it. I mean, Stephen, for 10 years, was a Buddhist chaplain in England. And he said there was this really, you know, nice guys, you know, in that jail he went. But especially one was such a nice person. But he had this incredible fast impulse that if he had a certain unpleasant feeling related to certain thing, he would be very aggressive. And so unfortunately, he killed somebody. And he's going to be in jail for a very long time. So in a way, unpleasant feeling, and then annihilation, aggression. And to see that often when we, we cause harm, Often it comes from that. There is an unpleasant feeling tone, and I want to get rid of it. And so there is that immediate reaction. Then the next one is stealing. Again, if we steal or borrow something and does not give it back, like books, for example, from the library, what happens? Generally, you have a pleasant feeling tone. Ooh, you have a pleasant feeling tone, so you want it. So often when, he, when we, we, we take something, you know, uh, you go walking and there is all, oh, lots of apple on the apple tree. Ooh, well, you know, they're not going to miss one or two. But I mean, why are you going for the apple? Because it's generally a pleasant feeling tone connected to the apple. Ooh, I want that. I want to satisfy that pleasant feeling. So to me, that's what is interesting. What is it that leads us to action? Appropriate action, harmlessness. Inappropriate action, harmfulness. And what is interesting with stealing is that actually we can also get a very pleasant feeling with being generous. You can have the opposite, actually. And if you look at the tradition of Native American, when they had this tradition of giving away, the one who gave the most away seemed to have the most pleasant feeling. So it's interesting, because that one can go either way. Very interesting. Then we have the third one, which is, Sexual misconduct. So the Buddha is not saying, you know, you should, everybody should be celibate, etc., etc. 
but looking at the harmfulness. Sexual misconduct is when you can, of course, harm through sexual misconduct. And generally, what is the cause of that? Very pleasant feeling. Or even more so, I think, anticipation of pleasant feeling. If only, ooh, she's so attractive. He's so amazing. Sex must be fantastic. I mean, don't know whether the experience is going to be pleasant or unpleasant, but I think we also have to see that often what leads to action is not even the pleasant feeling connected to something there, but in anticipation of it. And that also can actually cause our action, what the feeling tone arise out of the anticipation. And so basically, the Buddha, I think what the Buddha, what the practice is telling us is about what uh, Temple was talking about yesterday, contact, feeling tone. So you have a contact, which is totally human, feeling tone, again, totally human. But what is interesting with the feeling tone is to see that it's constructed. That actually, although the feeling tone is immediate upon eating something, smelling something, this morning, or was it, I think, coming back from lunch, or at some point today, I was very happy. So, very pleasant feeling tone, because finally, the turkeys appeared. I love the turkeys. So, I saw contact, the turkeys, ooh, so lots of pleasant feeling tone upon seeing the turkey. Because I have a good association with the turkey. I love them. Stephen is not keen on them. He's very happy that they're not there. He thinks they're noisy and messy. So again, you know, you see the same thing. From one person arises very pleasant feeling tone and the other one... Slightly unpleasant feeling too. Same with music or painting of lots of things. It's very interesting to see that some of the feeling tone is, of course, most people share it, but a lot of them is constructed. Our experience, our culture, etc., etc. So in a way, you have the contact, you have the feeling tone, and then to me this is where we have the freedom. You know, as uh, Temple was explaining yesterday, we can grasp or not. It can be appropriate. It can lead to appropriate action or to inappropriate action. It can lead to what I would call a fast reaction, which might not be appropriate. Or it can lead to a creative response. And I think that's what the meditation helps us to develop, the mindfulness. So that we have the contact, the feeling arise, and then having enough space so that we can creatively engage with the feeling. So there is not this immediate reaction to the feeling tone because it goes very fast. And I think that's what this meditation we did today I mean, I, I know it's not an easy meditation to do because, as Temple mentioned, it's kind of fairly neutral feeling when we are generally on the meditation retreat. But I think what I feel it does, it's kind of like, again, we penetrate a little more inside part of our experience. So we kind of start to, mm. so it's kind of, you add a quality which actually helps us also to focus. Personally, I find it very focusing, trying to be aware of the feeling tone, not as to analyze it. Is it five and three-quarter pleasant? Or is it unpleasant two and a half? But more, can I become a little aware of the feeling tone and how I react or respond upon it? So if we look at the pleasant, you have a pleasant feeling tone. Generally, we want more of it. We want it to continue. We want to repeat it. This is what is so interesting. It's pleasant. 
you have a pleasant experience, you have a pleasant meditation. Oh, it's so nice. I'm so quiet and peaceful. Oh, so nice. And then you go to your next meditation. And there is a big expectation it's going to be exactly the same. And some of the time it is, some of the time it's not. But to see that generally we have a nice experience, we want to repeat it. That it be a nice weekend with friends, a nice meal, a nice meditation retreat. Once I, I was teaching and regularly every year I would see the same person. And generally he had ecstatic meditation. Oh, it was so fantastic. He really had amazing meditative experiences. And then he came and then, you know, I said, it's terrible. Nothing, nothing. It's all. And I said, but hasn't something happened recently to you for you to feel that way? And he said, yes, that's true. That's true. He had had three deaths in the family. And of course, that was the kind of feeling Tony was going to have. That's what he was going to have to deal with. He could not immediately kind of go into really happy state. And so kind of accepting that. I think it's very important when we come on a retreat to see that we come with our condition. And we're not above condition. On the contrary, it helps us to creatively engage with the conditions. So... Also, what is interesting with pleasant is that we grasp at the image of what would be pleasant. So, for example, you sit in meditation and next to you, you imagine the ideal meditator. Totally calm, no thought, floating a little. <laughs> and then compared to you, I mean, you're not great compared to that one. You know, I mean, he's like, you know, ideal meditator. But I think often we do this. We grasp at a pleasant image of something that is not there. But the problem with that is that then we compare to what is there. And then it's frustrating because it's not the same. And that often that brings in actually unpleasant feeling to due to the comparison. When I moved to our house, in a new house in France, I had, this, I had this dream of this beautiful staircase, in wood, elegant, totally all. And then I could not get it, and I got a very, very ordinary staircase. And then it was going to a little meditation room we built. And so every time I went to meditate, I felt, ugh. And finally one day I said, what's going on here? And then I realized I was seeing two staircases, <laughs> which was a little dangerous. The imagined one and the real one. And compared to it, it really was not. But then just that mindfulness, that seeing. Then the second one disappeared and I realized this is good enough. It does the job. So to see if we do this, this grasping at something that is not there. So it doesn't mean, I think it's very important to see that pleasant feeling tone is very important for a human being to experience. We're not trying to get rid of pleasant feeling tone. But we're trying to get creatively engaged with pleasant feeling tone. Because I think it's an important thing to do, to be aware, oh yeah, right now, I experience a pleasant feeling tone. Then you have unpleasant. And so again, unpleasant, we immediately, we don't want it. We push it away. But the problem with that, as I was talking about the other day, is that as soon as you push, you're actually grasping in reverse so that you will have the same thing, process of magnification. As soon as you push something away, you are going to amplify it. So it's going to be more difficult to deal with it. So in a way, it's not that we should have more unpleasant feeling, but how can we creatively engage with them? And also, again, 
with the unpleasant, often we are okay here. And then we frighten ourselves with anticipation of a future unpleasant feeling. If this happens, then my life is going to be terrible or finished or whatever. Although it's not happening now. And I think it's very important to see that in abstraction, you can really frighten yourself. Amazingly so. And then you can really make this experience now very unpleasant, just from that negative anticipation. And we have to see that the creative potential cannot work with abstraction. Creative potential can only work now. And I think that's one of the gifts of mindfulness. The gift of being here is to see, okay, what is going on here without that amplification effect? When I was in Korea, we were going to do a three-day, uh, four-days non-sleep week, non-sleep meditation. All day, all night, this was, you know, special time, special awakening time. And we as a girl, we are going to do it. And I had no problem with the sitting. All day, all night, no problem. My problem was with being, going to the bathroom at night. Because it was outside, you had to walk a bit. And I thought, you know, if I'm, this is going to, I'm going to have a heart attack, you know. I was so afraid of the dark. So I go to Master Cruz and I say, what should I do? And he says, ask the question. And I thought, right. It's going to be like a magical thing, like a talisman against the bad guys out there. Because before I used to go out, think there was a bad guy going to get me, my heart would race and I would be like, Boo. so as soon as I went, I went out at two o'clock in the morning, what is this, what is it? what is it? what is it? And within a day, it worked. But it was not magic. It was just a what is this brought me back to where I was. And then I would realize who would come and get me in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere? <laughs> who would even know I was there? <laughs> then, also I think what is interesting is, is that what we're developing in meditation in terms of unpleasantness. I know often we feel this is too much. I can't handle it. I really can't do this. When I started to meditate, I could not sit. I really could not sit. Ten hours a day, I could not sit. I could not breathe. I could not sit there until Master Cousin came to sit with us. So I really sat. He's here. What is this? What is this? It was too much. I left. We're not supposed to leave there. You have to do your 10 hours, you know, you can't. So when I came back, there was a the leader of the hall at the dictionary hand. I said, Master Cousin said, I said, oh, what did he say? So we looked. Okchiro chanta. To bear beyond strength. I said, what? Bear beyond strength. Then I thought, well, They've been doing this for more than 600 years and nobody died of it. <laughs> so possibly I could give it a try. So after that, I did not miss any sitting ever. And within a month, it was okay. It does not mean that it was not painful or I was not sleepy. But there was no amplification of the unpleasant feeling anymore. So I could just be with it, arising, passing away. And I remember a few years back, because of my sciatica, I was teaching a retreat on my own. And we walk, and we sit, and suddenly my leg is on fire. Well, I really never had such pain in my leg, on fire. And I have 30 minutes to sit there, because I ring the bell, nobody else can do it. And I'm thinking, if I grasp at this unpleasant feeling, the 30 minutes are going to be like 10 years. Instead, I use a meditation to go 
inside the focus, to go inside the looking deeply to experience what was going on. And it was throbbing, it was moving. And the 30 minutes passed in a flash. Amazing. And then I rang the bell and went and took a (laughs) painkiller. But it showed me that, you see, you can have an unpleasant feeling. And then what do you do to it? Do you amplify it? Do you creatively engage with it? Neutral. And neutral, personally, I'm very keen on neutral. I think neutral is a good idea. I'm not saying, you know, it's more important than pleasant or unpleasant. But I think neutral has a bad press. And we need to recover neutral. Because I think neutral is very restful. Nothing is happening, but nothing bad is happening. That's already something. And then you can just rest. And there is this wonderful phrases from this nun at the time of the Buddha, which are now is in the Pali Canon. And that's what she says about feeling tone, Vedana. As long as a pleasant feeling continues, it's pleasant. When it stops, it's unpleasant. As long as an unpleasant feeling continues, it's unpleasant. When it stops, it is pleasant. If we don't understand neutral feeling, it's unpleasant. If we understand neutral feeling, it is pleasant. Interesting. With neutral, it can turn either way. If we don't understand neutral, then you are like my niece, six years old, and having a crisis of boredom. I am bored. Crying. You know? And it's so painful then. It's like the worst thing in the world. But if you just understand neutral feeling, you can just rest. When I was teaching about the Vedana in, uh, at some place, and there was this lady who was from Poland and just had kind of recently got to living in England. And she said, oh, I understand this neutral stuff. Now I understand. Before I did not, but now I do. Because when I arrived in England, I went to London. And for two weeks, you know, I did not know anybody and nothing was going on. And I felt really bored and really unhappy. You know, this is unpleasant. And then she had a terrible toothache. And she thought, before was not unpleasant. Before was quite nice, actually, compared with the unpleasantness of the toothache. So she could see the difference. So the last thing I would like to say about (coughs) feeling tones, Vedana, is in a way to look a little at the baseline. Because often I have the feeling that in our abstracts, I don't know, body-mind complex, I feel we, our baseline is number five, pleasant. So everything up is pleasant. Everything under number five, pleasant, mm, not so sure about it. But to me, the discovery of neutral is that the baseline is neutral. Then you can go up 10 and you can go down 10. But I think it's kind of more, in a way, reasonable than thinking we should be up there a lot of the time. That's why I think then there is more gradation. And I would say there is more wisdom in connection with the feeling tone. And the other thing I wanted to talk about was appropriate efforts. That's one of the other of the Eightfold Paths, which is also known as the Four Great Efforts. And I know this morning you got Elsa. You got Elsa from Stephen. And this evening, I am suggesting selping. We create a new word. We selp. (laughs) And when we selp, we cultivate the four great efforts of sustaining, enabling, letting go, 
preventing. So let's see about this selping. The first one, and to me, why, why I'm very interested in the four great efforts, because it's very much about being aware of conditions and about transformation before and during. So the first one, S, sustain positive states once they have arisen. Second, E, enable positive states that have not yet arisen to arise. Why not? That would not be a bad thing to do. Third, let go of negative states once they have arisen. L, P, prevent negative states that have not yet arisen to arise. Again, possibly not a bad idea. So first one, sustain. And what is interesting with sustain is that it's very easy. Really, with sustain, you really don't have to do much effort. Sustain, you just have to be aware of it. Like if you are in a positive state and you're aware of it in a way where you don't grasp, you're just aware of it, and then it just continues. That's an easy way. That's really, I think, the, one of the easiest things we can do. And we can try this out when we're in meditation. When we meditation sometime, we have this quiet and clear state. And so suddenly we feel really quiet and clear. And generally we get very excited. This is it, awakening in the next minute, you know. I should start to think about my... Mercedes and my disciple and whatever <laughs> comes with it. And then as soon as you get excited about the state, it goes. But if you're just aware of it, really feeling it, and just hold it very gently, just be... And often people think, how can I deepen it? This is a myth of the depth. I must deepen it. And I would say the, oh, the way to deepen it, just sustain. And sustaining means to just be so aware of it. Just be with it. Just be aware of it. And then it continues until the energy goes down. And then it changes and something else happens. And I think we can do the same in our daily life. To see that actually just to be aware of something that is positive, actually it happens by itself. I remember, I mean, I have a, a few books. I think now I may be seven or eight books in print. And when I was at school, I really was not good at composition. I really had not very good notes. So I never thought I would become a writer. That was really not in my framework. I got such bad marks. But then I went to Korea. I started to translate Master's Kuzan talks. And then somebody came and said, hmm, why don't you do something about this? Why don't you write them down? And then there is also Stephen here. He can put them in good English. And why, you know, you could do this. And I thought, why not? You know, I can read, I can write, I can translate. Why not? And so we did it. But that was a common effort. Stephen was also there to polish things up. And then I left. I was not a nun anymore. I was in England. And somebody said, oh, you, you did a book. And I need to do a book on Buddhism and ecology. Uh, you know about Buddhism. I know about ecology. Maybe we could do it together. And I thought, why not? You know? Yeah, we can do that. And you see, but if I had thought, I really can't do this. I am not a writer. I'll never be a writer. Then I would say, no, no, I can't think about it. But I thought, why not? And to me, what is interesting with this writing process is that in the doing of it, in the writing of it, then it sustains itself. And actually, I become more and more creative. It kind of improves as it goes along. And that's why I really think with the positive state, we don't need to do much. 
but just to be aware of them and to continue with them, to sustain them just by being with it, by being it. And the same with the meditation. If you focus and you don't force it, then at some point it kind of sustains itself. I mean, of course, there will be a certain energy which then will go and then it will change. So you cannot continue forever in the same way. I remember many years ago when my uh, niece still came to visit us now. She's a young lady of 12. She has her buddies. So she would come and visit us and stay with my mother. And then she would come up to see auntie and uncle. And then one day we have worked in the garden. We're tired and we sit in the, just in the living room listening to Schubert and just, you know, quietly. And she appears. Six years old. She listened to the music. She looked at us. She said, I am going to dance. Fine. And then she started to dance for 30 minutes. She danced. And the only thing she needed for us to do it, to continue, was actually for us to look at her. That's all she needed, to look at her with love and acceptance. And so she did it for 30 minutes. It was a very beautiful moment, wonderful moment of just being there, sustaining the moment by just being with it. And then after 30 minutes, she went to it down. And then the next morning, she wanted to reproduce it. <laughs> and of course, it did not work. Then there is a second one, to enable Positive states that have not yet arisen to arise. So basically, how can we enable calm, clarity, creativity, compassionate response? And I think that's what we do it on this retreat. To me, what we're cultivating on this retreat is to help us in our daily life to enable those things to arise. Like when we cultivate the three training of ethics, meditation, of wisdom, I think that's what we do to allow things more likely to arise. And I think to really remember, when you go back to the daily life, the tools of awareness that you've cultivated, that the breath is going to help us to to calm ourselves. So to remember I have this tool, to remember I can use it, and it can help me to be more calm. Often when we are in our daily life, suddenly you have this... I am busy, I am busy, I am busy. Then you can really stress. And just for two minutes, just to be aware of the breath. Or if we are kind of really caught in our mind, in our thoughts, coming back to the body, anchoring in the body, reminding ourselves that we can do that. And through the anchoring in the body, the groundedness more likely to appear. Or with the listening, listening to the sounds in a different way, listening in this non-grasping, not rejecting way. Once we were, I was teaching in England uh, just today, and uh, we were teaching in a school that was borrowed. And so, you know, you had 100 people, and they all come to meditate, mindfulness, on a quiet Sunday in England, and we barely started, that there is a neighbor mowing his lawn with full blast the rolling stone. And so we're sitting with revolution. And personally, I thought, this is great. You know, they can really cultivate listening. They really have something to work with here. And it was interesting because half of them really took it in the spirit of practice. And they really listened to it in a different way. And it really was no problem for their meditation. And I told them, as long as you hear it, you are present and aware. When you don't hear the sound anymore, you're gone somewhere else. So it's a good bell of mindfulness to keep you present. But, of course, some of the people were like, oh, you know, if 
I mean, what's the point of coming here and not being able to meditate quietly? And then, of course, it was difficult. Or you have the questioning. I think the questioning can really be helpful. In a way, when we kind of, is this true? To me, it's really about questioning our thought, questioning our assumption, not so that we have this terrible vacillating doubt, but so that it opens it opens the moment, or instead of being fixed, what is this? Is this true? What is really going on here? I was waiting for a friend, so I wait, she's not here. And of course I could have gone, you know, who does she think she is, you know? And I thought, hmm, strange, why is she not coming? So I phoned her. And she said, oh, I thought it was next week. So I thought, fine. You know, now I can go and do something else. But you see, we can. You see, you have, you have something which happened. How are you going to take it? How are you going to assume, then get excited and amplify? Or are you going to creatively engage, which is more likely to let clarity, calm, compassion arise? And tomorrow, we'll do equanimity, which I think is kind of very important to help us, to remind us that actually we have some balance within ourselves. We have potential for stability. And so, you know, to remember that when we really feel so very tumultuous, think, fool, to remember there is a place which can be stable within me, which can be balanced. And then there is a loving kindness. And again, the loving kindness, I think, turns anger. Instead of being often frightened, it turns anger in a kind of a different way. Recently, I was talking with a young woman, and she was saying she often used a loving kindness. Because she said, loving kindness, in a way, helped me to start in a positive manner with somebody. It might not last that way, but at least I start in a positive manner. Because she's an actress and she has this director who is quite difficult. And so she kind of generally does a lot of loving kindness about him. So when she goes to her meeting with him for the first 20 minutes, she's okay. And then after 20 minutes, he gets a bit too much. But she said, I did 20 minutes, I'm calm with him. Instead of already being kind of frightened or agitated or frustrated. So to see, to me, the second one, to enable, is in a way the recollection of the possibility of cultivation. That I can cultivate something here. Because we can forget so easily that we have cultivation, we have a potential, we have cultivated before. And in a way, we can cultivate something again so that it's more likely to arise. Then you have the third one is let go. You know, we let go of negative states once they have arisen. And that is not easy. You know, I'm not, I think this is kind of one of, I know one of my book is called Let Go, but that was because of the publisher. I wanted to call it creative engagement. We thought it was not snappy enough. So I think one has to be careful to think that if I just say, let go, that you will let go. You won't. Most of the time, you won't. So I think in a way, we have to explore this notion. What is it that, in a way, how can I let go? And I would say one of the key to the letting go is a mindfulness, is, a, is looking deeply, seeing how, what is going on here. To me, that was my breakthrough with, uh, I have a tendency to, I can be angry. I have this uh, little fiery nature, which I've much improved with meditation. But the breakthrough with that was to really become aware fully of it. Once I was really angry, 
And instead of going into the story of it, I went into the experience of it. So I went into the body. And I felt my body was shaking. And I realized I was doing this to myself. Nobody was doing this to my body. And when I saw that, it just went. But I think it could go because I fully inhabited the experience. Instead of kind of like going into proliferation, amplification. And then I looked into my mind to see what was going on there. And what was going on was, I am right, she is wrong, I am right, she is wrong. And then I realized she must be thinking exactly the same but the opposite way. And I laughed, I thought it was funny. And I thought we were both right or wrong in some way. And so I think, in a way, it's that movement. I think the letting go will be help with that, instead of going into the amplification, going into what is the experience? What is going on in the moment? Not just within myself, but within the environment. Once I just said something, I was working with somebody. I, th- I thought I... I said an innocuous remark. But obviously it was not an innocuous remark for the person. And he had a tendency to explode, and he exploded, you said it, and you think I'm... And he was really like this. And I could have thought, okay, you know, he has a tendency to explode, he will go down later, who cares, you know. No, I thought, no, there is a problem here. I said something, and he took it, in a painful way, and let me take the time to creatively engage so that he can let go. And so I talked to him for 30 minutes. We talked and listened to each other, and then after 30 minutes, it really went down. And he could let go of that first initial response, and there could be kind of more understanding between each other. But it took me 30 minutes. I had to decide to take the time to do this so the letting go could happen. So with the letting go, I think we have to be very careful because I think there is many different types of letting go. And personally, I would see the letting go in in four stages. And I think it's very important to see that. And each of them is a letting go. Because I think we put too much emphasis on what I would call Big Bang letting go. (laughs) But personally, I think there are many different aspects of letting go. And we have to consider each of them as important. And the first one, I think at the beginning of our practice, is what I would call after. You... Something happens, you react, you get in a negative state, it goes through its motion, it finishes, and you're like, oh, yes, something happened. It was unpleasant. Hmm. Hmm, okay. Then it happens again. So you go through the motion, da da da. Oh, oh, yes, bad idea. And I think to me, this is already letting go. The fact that you're not totally caught in it. At the end, you can finally see, hmm, that was not a good idea. That was not a good idea. When I was a young nun, because of my little impulsive temperament, I would be very nice. Very nice. Things are okay. Things are okay. And then... I would like kind of really have a kind of a slightly fast, a little nasty reaction. And then people will think, what? She's a nun. What's the matter with her? I thought she was a nice nun. So it happened once, it happened twice, and I thought, hmm, this is not on. <laughs> you know, you, as a nun, it's really not on to do this. So after that, I was really, really much more aware of, you know, 
you know, what happens? How does it go? But first I had to become aware that it happened. Instead of thinking, you know, well, you know, can't be helped, never mind. And think, oh no, this matter, I have to do something about it. Then you have the second stage, which is what I call in the middle. So you're in the middle of it. And you're so aware you are caught in this negative state. And being aware of it doesn't make a difference. And this actually is the most frustrating. Because you think meditation should be able to help you. And actually before at least you were, you were caught in the action. You kind of enjoy it in a funny way. Now you can't even enjoy being you know, angry or whatever it is. You know, because you're so aware of it. But it doesn't seem to do anything. But personally, I think it's already a letting go because it de-intensifies. There is less amplification. So generally, you're aware of it, it's a bit tough, but generally, it doesn't last as long, it's not as intense. Then you have the third one, which is beginning. You start to see what happens. You start to see the danger of going down certain routes. If I go down that way, it's going to go to a very painful place. And then you start to help yourself with what I call creative diversion, creative distraction, moving away from it. That's one of the uh, recommendations of the Buddha. Go away from it. Look away from it for a little while change the direction. And that is interesting, because I know we're supposed to, you know, really be in it, you know, but I think sometime, in order to work with it, to let go, we need to move away from it. And then it loses power. That's what is interesting, moving away from it. It really loses its power. I used to have this uh, funny thing when I first married to Stephen, that I would be afraid that he would die. And then I would go into this all crying and all this kind of thing. And he said, what's the matter with you? You know, I thought we'd go in all this scenario and what if Stephen dies and da 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 And then Stephen, you know, pointed it out. This is kind of weird, you know, yeah. in a weird state. Nothing is going on. And then I thought, but he's not dead yet, you know. <laughs> Maybe I should enjoy it while he's here. And then in order to kind of creatively turn from it, I thought, what if, the, what if I asked, what if I die? And I started to do this, and I really was not interested. If I died, who cares? You know, I was not there. So, and, it, and it totally stopped. And I never did it again. It was very interesting. It was so powerful. And then... Just changing it slightly, just it go, went. And then there is a fourth stage, which is before the thing happened. And that one is very interesting, that letting go. Because there, you see the condition that's going to make the thing happen. You know, for the last 30, 40, 50 years, if this happened, you react in that way. And so you see the thing like a and then the creative awareness say, wait a minute. And that's what we're doing here. We're cultivating the power of creative awareness. So finally, one day we think, wait a minute here. Could not I do something different? And what is interesting there is that at that moment, there is an incredible fear. And that's why we don't change. We prefer the pain of the known than the non-pain of the unknown. But if you have enough power of creative awareness, you decide for this one time, I will do something different. So you do something different. And then you feel such ease. And you think, why did not I do it before? And then you never do it again. Why? Because of compassion. Because finally you realize how painful it was for you and others. And then you become creative about what you will do next in those circumstances. Which leads me to the last one. Last great effort, 
prevent negative state which have not arisen to arise. And this to me is very much about creative engagement with conditions. How can we help ourselves before something happens? What can we do? And I think what we can do is to be aware of the condition, to be aware of the trigger, to be aware that we don't do this all the time. So what is a trigger? What are the conditions and what are the contributing factors? And to me, this is an important one in terms of mindfulness. That one of the, I would say, the contributing factor to compassion going is actually busyness. I am busy. I am busy. I have this to do, that to do. I am busy. Somebody is suffering here. Never mind. Maybe in three days at seven o'clock, possibly, but not now. I am really busy. This is so important. Busyness. I think is a contributing factor. Or overextension, overextending, or sleeplessness, not sleeping well is a big contributing factor. And finally, tiredness. Tiredness for some people is a big contributing factor. It used to be for me. I used to suddenly find myself irritated. I feel irritated. So then I would look for somebody to be irritated with. You can't, you know, let a good irritation go by <laughs> without acting on it. So generally, I mean, the, generally I found Stephen. <laughs> so I would be irritated with him. And he said, but I have not done anything. I thought, it happens once, happens twice. And I thought, but why am I irritated? <coughs> and then I looked. And I realized it was when I was tired. So then, when I was tired, then I became more, I tried to be really more aware of when I was tired. And now when I'm tired, I go and rest. And then I'm a much nicer person. So in with that, I think it's important to see what is a contributing factor. What can I do about that contributing factor? So that's what I wanted to do today. Are there any questions or comments? Yeah. Yeah. Just some people need it to hear. Well, it's more for the others. And if it's not working, then we can we do without it. You're talking about um, working with anger when you see the arising of anger. When you, but what if you really know you're right, and it's not that, <laughs> and you really know the other person's wrong? Yeah, but you see, uh, what will work? The question is, what do you want to achieve? Do you want to achieve supremacy? I am right. And you're going to accept it, and this is the way it is. Or you could be right. They could be wrong. But what can you do so that they can listen to you? This is what I have seen previously, that when there is some problem with some people, myself included, is that generally one goes into aggressive and defensive mode. You did that. I did not do it. You know when you are a child and you break a vase or something and the mother said, you did it. And you said, no, 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 I did not do it. It's kind of like immediate. You see, if, you, if we accused, even if, even if we have done it, our first reaction is protection. I, I did not do it. So then, I mean, of course, there is a mismatch, especially if the thing is right there. But then how can you do so that there is not this aggression, defense, and then attack reaction. Because you, you can say, you did this, it's wrong. And they say, I might have done this now wrong, but you did that the other day. And then you kind of go, kind of, you know, the counting business, you know, who did what, when. And... 
So to me, what is important, and that's why I mean, I, I won't have the time to cover it, but it's appropriate speech. How, if there is a difficulty, how can I speak to the person so that they can hear me, that they can listen to me? Once I had this, uh, this is a weird problem. This is only a French problem. Uh, Problem with the tomb in the cemetery. You have a family plot. And... It's a long story, we won't go into it, but people thought we, my family, should not go in that tomb anymore. Finished. For various reasons. My mother was extremely upset, and her best friend, which come from the family, was trying to do something about this business. So then I phoned her. And we start mode, I am right. So we escalate, escalate, you know. Ta, ta, ta. And suddenly I find that we can really escalate it to a dangerous level. And then I think, this is not a good idea. This is not what this phone call is about. This phone call is about, you know, creative resolution to this problem. So I de-escalate. And what was interesting is she responded, so she de-escalated too. And then we kind of, and we come down. And then we found a creative solution. But I think if I had just continued to escalate, I think in a way I would have actually broken one of the closest, most beautiful friendship my mother has. And to me that was very interesting that do we go up, do we go down? So, of course, uh, we, we could be right. But how can we creatively engage so that this, there can be resolution? which works for both persons. Yes? Um, Thank you so much for explaining all that you have. And I think for me, what I'm taking away is that these um, different mind states, different meditation techniques going to the breath, the body. These are creative. Choosing which one is appropriate is very creative. And for me, it's always been not so clear that if I'm in a certain state, I choose this technique. Another state, this one will work better. So this meditation retreat has really given me this window onto the creative choices just in the meditation. And then, of course, you know, being aware in real life, when do you need to do a loving kindness for someone and when should you just go to your breath? <laughs> so thank you so much. Pleasure, pleasure. Here. So um, I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about um, the difference between sustaining the positive state once it has arisen and grasping. When do, you, when do you know, oh, I'm no longer sustaining, I'm actually grasping here? Well, I'm generally, if you grasp, generally you have tension. You see, I think sustaining, that, that's the way you can see it with, even with the meditative state. You know, as soon as you grasp at it, you generally want it to continue, you want it to be deeper, you want to tell, to tell all your friends about it, or... Generally, you identify. It's very important to see. Grasping, we identify. And we abstract a bit too. So that, I think, is a sign. Tension, proliferation, abstraction, amplification, generally is a sign. And um, also, I think, uh, yeah, in a way, it's how much selfing there is in it, how much kind of like that. Because I remember when I was first in Korea, I would get into this state. I am happy. I am so happy. I will be happy for the rest of my life. And the next day I was in a terrible funk. So then after that I was very careful. 
You know, it happened two or three times. You know, to feel, wow, this is fantastic. This is the greatest thing in the universe. And the next day, pull. To the degree I went up, I went down. And I thought, hey, what's that there? What's going on? I don't, it was not sustaining. It was kind of like grasping. And then you amplify. And then it goes like a kind of a... And so after that, I started to understand what is more that sustaining. Just resting with it. Just cultivating it. And not so much about doing something with it, but more being it, being in the current of it. And then as you are in the current of it, knowing it will, it will pass. It will pass when, if I have a quiet and clear state, I enjoy it, but I know it will pass. So I, I enjoy it even more in a way, because I know at some point you know, I can sustain it, Sustain it, and at some point, it's going to go. Okay. Oh, at the back, at the back there. And that's the last one we have to. So, what about? The situation, a, a meditator who is really comfortable with the neutral. And um, you, you said when, when a pleasant state ceases, we find it unpleasant. When an unpleasant state ceases, we find it pleasant. What about the situation of the neutral state ceasing? And whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, it seems unpleasant. <laughs> And what I mean by that is, for example, if, if, if I'm really excited because something good has happened, I'm very happy about that, until it's time to go sit down on the cushion, then I start to feel this sense that uh, this excitement is going to just, you know, it's, it's going to be hard to sustain some sort of balanced energy so that I can even just sit there. So it's sort of almost like a a pleasant experience and the feeling tones of the pleasant experience can sort of create, uh, it just kind of wrecks the the meditation. I would go walking meditation. You see, I think, I mean there is different things about that. But one of the, the things would be, you know, if you're really excited, to then just sit is going to really damp, kind of like uh, dampen the energy. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like you were up there and then... So one has to be careful with that. So then personally I would say, use something which is more energetic. Go for a walking meditation. Just walking meditation. And then... You can have still the pleasant sensation, but without grasping at it, just being it. But there will be less of that effect. Another thing is learning to, to contain. And to contain in a way which does not push down. I know for myself when... Um, when I had that experience, I was uh, I, uh, for a book on Buddhist women. I kind of sent lots of letters, and nothing happened. And then suddenly, three letters at once arrived. You know, you get your grant, da, da, da. and then I was like a kind of flea. Like <laughs> I'm happy. It's fantastic. And then I had to do house cleaning because that was my job at the time, the way I earned my money. So I go as house cleaning, and I'm like. <laughs> A jumping flea. So it was not very efficacious for the house cleaning. <laughs> and so what I did was actually to just sit and breathe. And so in a way to be the joy without grasping the joy. And so that the joy stayed. It was still there. But it was not that kind of like kind of a tension-making thing. And then I went to do my work. 
And again, the, the work was infused with the joy, but without that disturbing element. But I think we have to learn, this is something we have to learn. How can we, and that's why I think sustaining is about, how can we sustain, contain, in a way which does not either compress it, and then it goes, or grasp at it, and then it kind of like, you know, goes a wire. But I think it's actually a skill. Even in meditation, it's a skill. You have to learn to hold in that way. Because I think we have either a tendency, you know, it's like a, a mother holding a child. A mother holding a child, if she holds too tight, the child is going to cry. If it's too loose, it's going to drop off. So in a way, we have to, she has to hold the child very gently. And I think to me, that's what the sustaining is about. How can I be with it? So in a way, you could say contain it, but in a way which is spacious. So the thing can breathe, but does not kind of get disturbing. And at the same time, you're not compressing it. That's what I would say. Thank you. Okay, and then we'll have to stop here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.